some water in his trunk and he put it to his mouth and he said, go, 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 go. Tryouts for the school play, which that year was going to be the Snow Queen. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and folk tales and fairy tales and personal tales and historical tales and more. And today's episode is going to be a great one. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We've got some great ones for you today. We'll bring you a story from Kirk Waller called Croc Goes Crunch, and you won't want to miss that story. And uh, we've got a conversation with Noah Baum about a favorite Bill Harley song of hers, and that will be a sweet conversation to have. You're going to hear from Madeline Potts, the story of the Snow Queen, and you'll hear a piece called Jump Rope Kingdom from Mary Hamilton. And up first, we've got a story from Kirk Waller. Now, this is a jazzy, updated version of an old story by Rudyard Kipling, one of Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. The Just So stories were really bedtime stories written by Rudyard Kipling based on stories that he would tell to his daughter at bedtime. And you may have heard the story of the elephant child. It's a story about how the elephant got the trunk that you know it to have today. Here's Kirk Waller with his version of that tale. It's called Croc Goes Crunch. We're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Now the elephant didn't always have a long trunk. Mm -mm. No, no, no. See, the elephant used to have a rather short, stubby nose. There was a mama elephant, a papa elephant, and a baby elephant that lived in the jungle. And the baby elephant would always ask the question, the question that all children ask. And that question is, why? Mama, why, why, why is the sky blue? Papa, why does a giraffe have such a long neck? Mama, why does a zebra have stripes? Papa, why does a cheetah run so fast? He'd ask, why, all day long. Now, Mama and Papa Elephant grew weary of his questions of why. Papa would say, Mm, why must you always ask why? Why can't you just accept things the way that they are? And Baby Elephant would say, But why? Why am I? 
Well, one day, when Baby Elephant was walking through the jungle, just amazed at all the things he saw and heard, he saw his friend, the monkey, swinging from the treetops. But when Monkey saw Baby Elephant, he didn't want to answer his questions of why. But when he tried to get away, he slipped and fell out the tree right at the feet of Baby Elephant. Why'd you fall out the tree? Why were you trying to get away from me? Monkey said, oh, 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 oh but I wasn't, Baby Elephant. I was, I was only trying to come here to see what you wanted. Oh. Good, because uh, I got a question for you. I was wondering, why does the croc go crunch? And what does he eat for lunch anyways? Mm. Why does the crocodile go crunch? Oh, oh, why, why, why don't you go and ask him yourself? But, uh, I don't know where he lives. Well, down by the river, of course. Oh, okay. Um, which way to the river? Baby Elephant, must I tell you everything? So Monkey gave him directions to go down by the river. You go left, down, right, down, way downtown, and go down to the river. I said down to the river left down right down way downtown and go down 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 to the river where the crock goes crunch so baby elephant was making his way down toward the river to find crocodile to ask him why he went crunch and what he eats for lunch but baby elephant because he had such a short stubby nose he had a difficult time doing just about anything. So when he wanted a drink of water, he had to get down on his front legs and then down on his hind legs and then put his head down to the ground to the puddle of water and go gulp, 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 gulp. And then stand up on his hind legs, up on his front legs, lift his head up and keep on walking down towards the river. And when Baby Elephant grew hungry, he would find a coconut put his baby elephant weight down on the coconut and crack the coconut shell. But then he'd have to get down on his front legs, down on his hind legs, put his head down on the ground, pick up the coconut and go gulp, 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 gulp. Then he'd have to get up on his hind legs, up on his front legs, lift his head up and keep on walking down the road. It was a lot of work being an elephant in these days. Well, finally, he made it to the river. He saw this creature gliding slowly on top of the river. Baby Elephant said, Excuse me! Uh, excuse me! Uh, why does the crocodile go crunch? And what does he eat for lunch anyway? Now the crocodile swam close to the land. He opened his crocodile mouth, showing all his sharp, shiny teeth. He looked at Baby Elephant and said, 
I can tell you why the crocodile goes crunch. And I can tell you what he eats for lunch. You see, I am the crocodile. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's just wonderful. So you could tell me why the croc goes crunching and what he eats for lunch, because nobody else seemed to want to tell me why. I asked my friend Monkey why, and he told me to come down and see you. And every time I ask my mama, papa, why... Uh, excuse me. Do you want to know why the crocodile goes crunch? Or what? Oh, sure. Good. Just come a little bit closer. So Baby Elephant gladly walked closer to the river's edge. Boom, 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 boom. Excellent, Baby Elephant. Just a little bit closer. Kids, help me out this time. Baby Elephant walked even closer to the river's edge. Boom, 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 boom. Almost there. Just a little bit closer. Boom, 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 boom. Now, I will tell you why the crocodile goes crunch. And what he eats for lunch. Because it's just about lunchtime now. And snap! That crocodile tried to eat that baby elephant, but baby elephant pulled back just in time, and crocodile just caught the tip of his stubby little nose. Crocodile tried to pull Baby Elephant into the water. He twisted and turned and pulled, but Baby Elephant, with all his might, fighting for his life, he pulled back. Crocodile pulled, Baby Elephant pulled, Crocodile pulled, Baby Elephant pulled, and every time they pulled, Baby Elephant's nose began to go... And they pulled and pulled and pulled until finally, Baby Elephant dug in with all of his might and snap! The crocodile had to let go and swim back into the river without any lunch. Baby Elephant walked away from the river, rubbing his nose, saying to himself, must I always ask why? Why can't I just accept things the way that they are? And Baby Elephant walked back home, pondering what he was going to tell his mama and papa about his new, sore, long trunk. And as he walked, he saw a puddle of water. And I know when I feel bad, I just get a cup of water, and sometimes it makes me feel better. So Baby Elephant went to the puddle of water and dropped his trunk right in the nice, cool water. Huh. He, he took up some water in his trunk, and he put it to his mouth, and he said, Gulp, 
กบกบก็ Hey, that was easy. And then he walked a little bit farther, and the coconut that that was on the ground, he just reached down with his new trunk, picked up the coconut, put it in his mouth, and said, "Go, go, go, go!" I like this new long nose. <laughs> he was walking down back towards Mom and Papa Elephant, and there was a mosquito that landed on his shoulder. And so, with his new long trunk, he. Swatted that mosquito off his shoulder. There were some leaves in the way. With his trunk, he moved the leaves out the way. I like this trunk. And so, the closer he got to home, the more excited he became. He was so excited. By the time he reached home, he was telling Mama and Papa Elephant all about the crocodile and the river and his new long nose and all the things that he could do. That well, by the end of that day, Mama Elephant, Papa Elephant, and all the elephants had went down to the river to get a new nose from Crocodile, and that's why the elephant has a long trunk. Croc goes crunch. Kirk Waller's terrific story, a jazzy version of an old story written in 1902 by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, Kipling's version is called *The Elephant's Child*, and it's one of the just-so stories, origin stories. Uh, told as bedtime stories for Rudyard Kipling's daughter. They're called just so stories because Kipling's daughter asked for them to be told just so every time. She had a particular way she wanted to hear those tales. Well, a pleasure to hear Kirk Waller's version of the story. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. You're going to hear from Madeline Potts, and Mary Hamilton, and more. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of the Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, we heard Croc Goes Crunch from Kirk Waller, a jazzy, updated version of Rudyard Kipling's 1902 story, The Elephant's Child. And coming up, we've got Madeline Potts with the story The Snow Queen, an old tale, and Mary Hamilton with Jump Rope Kingdom, a new tale. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes uh, be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine about an old vinyl LP record that I loved when I was a kid. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I've made no secret of the importance in my young life of the family bookshelf. It housed not only all of the books in the house, but all the records, too. Those records are where I first heard Bob Dylan and the Beatles and James Taylor and Cat Stevens and Harry Nilsson and Linda Ronstadt and Bach and Prokofiev and Ravel. I listened to all those records, the ones that were favorites of my parents. But because I was a little kid, I also listened to records that were especially made for people like me. 
I remember Let Us All Sing, a record of songs written by Dr. Seuss, with songs like My Uncle Terwilliger Waltzes with Bears, and Somebody Stole My Hutufutubutuba, and The Left Sock Fevers. And there were Sesame Street records, too. My favorite was a record called Ernie's Hits, which featured, of course, tunes like Rubber Ducky, but also these kind of audio theater pieces, like a piece in which the guy who mainly talks in sound effects has to describe how his car stalled out at a railroad intersection, and how he needs to borrow Ernie's phone, and you, as the audience, are left to put the story together by interpreting the sound effects you're hearing. And it features an adventure called Tiger Hunt, in which Ernie takes his trusty rusty telescope and heads off into the jungle to find a tiger, and you go along with him, acting out, walking through the tall jungle grass, and swimming a mighty river, and otherwise navigating the exotic landscape, until you find a tiger, and then you have to navigate it all backward at double speed, chased by the tiger, who, you find out, is just trying to return the trusty rusty telescope that Ernie lost in the jungle on the adventure. It's a sound effects and comedy-laden version of the Going on a Bear Hunt audience participation story adventure that she went on so many times on the elementary school classroom carpet. And my favorite song on the album, my first experience maybe with reflection and mindfulness, was a song called Imagination, in which Ernie and his friends lie down on the floor and close their eyes and talk about what they see in their imaginations while Ernie sings, Here in the middle of imagination, right in the middle of my mind, I close my eyes, and the night isn't dark, and the things that I lose I find. Time stands still, and the sky is clear, and the wind is warm and fair. And the nicest place is the middle of imagination when I'm there. Ah, it's a beautiful little song written by the great Joe Raposo, who wrote the Sesame Street theme song, as well as tender, hopeful songs with lyrics like, It's not that easy being green, having to spend each day the color of the leaves. And lyrics like, Don't worry that it's not good enough for anyone else to hear. Just sing. Sing a song. These were some of the first songs to mean something to me. And I went on a thousand of Ernie's tiger hunts as a kid, and I sang Rubber Ducky a million times till my parents couldn't take it anymore. And I lay on my back trying to believe in the things that I could see in my imagination. Well, fast forward to my senior year in high school. Now, I sing in the school choir this year. So does my little brother. And it's the day of the Christmas party in which we've all drawn names of people for whom we'll come up with a little white elephant Christmas gift. And it comes time for Justin Harper to open his gift. It's a big, flat, square package. And when he rips off the wrapping paper, everybody laughs and cheers. It's a vinyl copy of Ernie's hits. And at first, I laugh and cheer, too. He's going to love that album, even if he's in high school, I think. But then I realize, in a kind of panic, that not only is it a copy of Ernie's hits, it's my copy of Ernie's hits. My brother has drawn Justin's name in the gift exchange, and, well, the record that Justin is holding in his hands is the very vinyl disc that saw me through my whole childhood. We all have those moments that define the passage from enormous chapter to another enormous chapter. 
things, the enormity of which can't really be sensed by anyone but you. The passing of a family pet, the final thrift store donation of a favorite old t-shirt, the cancellation of a beloved childhood TV show. For me, and I don't expect anyone to get this, the passing of that old record from the family bookshelf into the hands of someone else was a crossing for me from childhood into something else. But don't worry, I didn't go far. In fact, when, some years ago, I bought a record player of my own and began to stock my own shelf with some of the same Bob Dylan and James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt albums I had loved as a kid, I saved a special place, a place occupied now, after a little looking around, by someone else's well-loved copy of Ernie's hits. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love as stories. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. If any of the stories that we share with you spark those kinds of memories for you, we'd love to hear about them. Write them down. Send them to us by email at theappleseed at byu.edu. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Madeline Potts with the old tale, The Snow Queen. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the meals that we share, the films that we love, the books that we treasure, the songs that we remember, and of course through the telling of tales from teller to listener, sometimes through generation after generation after generation. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories come into our lives is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. And I'm so pleased to be joined by a longtime friend of the show, storyteller and author Noah Baum author of A Land Twice Promised and the brand new picture book for children, How the Birds Became Friends. You can find information about both of those books at noahbaum.com. Noah, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so much, Sam. It's lovely to be back here. You know, as we think about uh, things to talk about together, one of the things that we discovered is that we are both big-time fans of a particular song. Uh, tell us a little bit about Moving Day. Yes. Well, I came to this country this time in 1990. And my kids were born here. And that's when I discovered storytelling for adults. Yeah. And uh, so my children grew up on cassettes on J.O. Yeah. Callahan and Bill Harley and Judith Black and Laura Sims and Heather Forrest and Milbury Birch and and you know, Ed Stivender, these were, these were the gods and goddesses of our home. <laughs> and, you know, you, you think, oh, you know, we're just listening to stories, you know, it's always cassettes in the car, everywhere we went, there was all, we were always listening to stories. But one particular song, one particular artist, Bill Harley became this huge, huge inspiration for us. And I didn't realize it until this big crisis in our family came and um, turns out we're not going back to Israel. Turns out we're staying in America. Turns out, you know, my husband was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and he got a job 
with the patent hmm. um, office at the government, we were moving to Washington, DC. Hmm. So here's my daughter, uh, 10 years old. All she knows is student housing, you know, her little room in student housing in Davis, California. She doesn't know anything else. And her parents say, we're moving. We're moving to this complete unknown. She has no sense of where she's going. And it was breaking my heart. Um, She was really anxious. And day after day, she would put on the cassette with Bill Harley's moving day. Yeah. Cars fall, trunks packed, stuff on the roof rack. Mom says we leave soon. Last time in my room. my daughter comfort yeah. and just to see just the fact that it gave her a space to weep yeah. and it gave her a space to be sad our audience will know bill harley of course bill Har- you you hear a lot of stories from bill harley on the apple seed and this particular song which we've also played on this show is this beautiful melancholy sorrowful song sung by a young girl who, uh, whose family is moving from one place to another. And it's just as you said, Noah, you know, we have, we have uh, such a difficult time finding the words to respond to some of the fears and difficulties that our children have facing some of these big things. Mm-hmm. And then the, the really wonderful thing about this little song is it doesn't shy away from any of them. It allows mm-hmm. the singer yeah. Yeah. to feel exactly. all the fears that she has. And yeah. sometimes that's just exactly what the listener needs to hear, right? Yeah. And so for me, it's like, I didn't know Bill Harley at the time, personally. I, he was just like, I just loved him that he gave me this gift that he was helping my daughter in her hardest moment where I I was, you know, trying, but I was dealing with so much else. And I don't think I could give her the kind of comfort that that song uh, gave her. Yeah. And it became, you know, to this day, you know, she's just turned 30 <laughs> and you put on that song, she'll start weeping. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's just become very special. And then when I when I finally met him, I think it was in 2001, I was just so, you know, it was one of the first things that I told him is that you, yeah. know, you, know, you were you're the hero in our family. And you <laughs> saved my daughter's life. <laughs> You talk about your daughter still loving that piece of music. And I think that's one of the key things that great stories or great songs can do is it gives us a little anchor, doesn't it? It gives us a little anchor that can, at the drop of a hat, in in just a moment, take us back to an important or foundational memory and bring us back there in 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 a really wonderful way, you know? 
Yeah, but you know, it's not just that it's the song. It was that it was Bill Harley and she knew all his stories. You know, right. this was somebody yeah. that she knew, right? Yeah. <laughs> we were listening to, we had all his cassettes. We were listening to all his stories. So it was like, this was somebody who was part of her world. The storytellers yeah. were part of our family. And yeah. the stories, you know, th there's a story that Jay O'Callaghan tells that that helped our family, you know, the, uh, uh, hurry, hurry, little dragon, hurry, hurry. You know, my son had always terrible times and transitions. We needed to get him out of the house. Hurry, hurry, little dragon, hurry, hurry. You know, so we had like, the, the storytellers were, you know, they were, they sustained us. That's right. And there's a moment, I think, when you have your first experience with a story being for you much more than an entertainment, you know, when a story that you know and love comes back to kind of save your life. Uh, mm -hmm. That's, a, that's, yep. an, that's an important realization, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Noah Baum, what a great pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so much, Sam. I look forward to standing with you in person and singing yeah. together. <laughs> we'll, you're on. Let's do it. And as Noah says, we're going to get together sometime and sing it up. <laughs>
and I walked to school, ten blocks to and from. In the winter, I would step off the curb and land in a snow-covered pothole, and that slushy, icy water would seep in over the tops of my galoshes, and I'd spend half a day in wet shoes and socks. And Freddie's mother. She was president of the PTA. She baked cookies and cupcakes for the class and chaperoned every trip. Well, my mother didn't care about PTA. She only baked for her family and, well, she never chaperoned anything. Freddie sat in the middle row of our bolted-down wooden desks flanked by her ladies-in-waiting. Leany, on one side, whose real name was Eileen, and who went to modeling school on Saturday and had her own portfolio. And Roseanne, who had long hair down to her waist, and it was always tied back in a bow that exactly matched whatever she was wearing. I figured she had a hundred ribbons. Well, I had some ribbons. They were salvaged from old birthday presents and made of single-sided satin paper that you could never, ever get the creases out of once they had been tied. And I could just imagine Roseanne's mother brushing that hair every morning and fashioning that billowing bow. I would come down the stairs and my mother would say, Madeline, comb your hair. And I'd say, I did. Okay. And off to school I'd go. And Mrs. Bixom, she was famous for a special event she held every year with her class, the school play. It was always a musical. She directed it, she produced it, she coached it, she choreographed it. She even played the piano conducting with her head. It would lull from side to side and jolt a full foot forward when she needed to cue in the singers. It was mesmerizing, disturbingly captivating. A whole audience would be transfixed on the gymnastics of Mrs. Bixom's head. And it was about halfway through the school year when Mrs. Bixom made the big announcement. Tryouts for the school play, which that year was going to be the Snow Queen. Now, if you don't know that story, it's the longest tale Hans Christian Andersen ever wrote. It's an epic saga of abduction and treachery and mystique and magic and love and redemption. So Mrs. Bixom reduced it to a more manageable version of a little boy named Kai who gets kidnapped by the evil Snow Queen who puts a spell on him. A little girl named Gerda whose loving kindness wins out over the Snow Queen's evilness. A flurry of little girls dressed as snowflakes who periodically just flitted across the stage. And the ever-present talking trees, 
whose job it was to be the scenery and fill in the narrative with simplistic lines always recited in a monotone. Tryout day came. Well, Leany got Gerda, of course. She had a portfolio. A little boy by the name of Melvin Wurstenberger got Kai. Not because he was any good at it. As a matter of fact, he never did learn all his lines. I think he got it because his mother was Mildred Wurstenberger, and you didn't want to get on her bad side. Everyone was terrified of her, even the teachers. She was the head lunch lady. Then it came down to tryouts for Snow Queen. And in the end, it was between me and Freddie. So Mrs. Bixom gave us each a part to recite and a verse of a song to sing. And I thought, oh, good, because I could sing and I knew it. And Freddie couldn't, and I knew that too. But then, Mrs. Bixom did something so underhanded, so chicken-hearted, so carefully crafted to avoid having to make an unpopular decision. She left it up to a class vote. Who wants Madeline for Snow Queen? And two little girls raised their hands. Naomi Pransker who we called Naomi Prankster because she was always doing weird stuff and being sent to the principal's office. And Joni French, who was the smartest girl in the class, painfully shy, and happened to sit next to me in the back row. Who wants Freddy for Snow Queen? And thirty hands shot up in the air with cheering and applause. I was devastated. I was enraged. It wasn't fair. And Mrs. Bixom came over to me and put her arm around me and said, Oh, Madeline, you get to be the Snow Queen understudy. And not only that, dear, you get to be a tree. A tree? A tree? Trees were the lowest rung on the theatrical ladder, and I cried, Oh, no, trees are dumb. And Mrs. Bixom said, Oh, no, dear, no, they're not. Why, the trees are the most important part of the whole play. We couldn't have the play without the trees. They connect. All the parts. And not only that, dear. The trees get to stay on stage the whole time. Not even the Snow Queen gets to do that. So I resigned myself to being a tree. But I didn't pay any attention to that thing about being an understudy because Freddie never got sick. She got the perfect attendance award every single month. 
Well, the day of the play came. We had a dress rehearsal in the morning, and we were all excited, except for Freddie. She was just kind of quiet all day. We left at three. We had to be back at six for the show to start at seven, and it was about six-thirty-five we were in our costumes and lined up in the wings, and everyone was excited except for Freddie. She was just kind of leaning against the wall and looking a little green. Suddenly, a rumble started in her stomach, and it worked its way up her torso until it exploded out of her mouth in a gigantic belch. Her eyes got wide. She cupped her hands and threw them in front of her mouth and went running off in the direction of the ladies' room, and Mrs. Bixen went running after her, and we all wondered, what are we supposed to do? And it was just a few minutes before curtain time when Mrs. Bixom came back with Freddie's costume over her arm. Children, Freddie has gotten sick and gone home with her mother and father. Madeline, you have to be the Snow Queen. Yes, I was secretly overjoyed, but all I said was, Okay. And I slipped Freddie's costume on. Mrs. Bixom went out front and took her place at the piano, which had been rolled into the middle of the auditorium floor, right in front of the stage. But in all that commotion, she forgot to tell me that I didn't have to do my part as a tree, which was apparently dispensable. So, in those last few seconds, I figured out how I was going to do both parts. You see, the Snow Queen costume was this long, glittery affair with a train, made by Freddie's mother's dressmaker, of course. The tree costume was this tubular cardboard affair with armholes and leaves and branches stuck on it. So, I slipped that tree costume on over my Snow Queen costume, and I started to make my way on stage, and I heard Mrs. Bixom starting the overture, pounding out the opening chords, kind of skimming over the harder-to-play, faster notes. And when the curtain opened, I was still trying to make my way on stage because you can't walk in a tree costume with a Snow Queen costume bunched around your feet. And all the other little trees were going, hurry, hurry, it's starting, it's starting. And Mrs. Bixom was so surprised at what she saw. Her head jolted further forward than it had ever gone before. And we all thought she was cueing in the first song, the Song of the Trees. So without the benefit of introduction, twelve little kids began singing in twelve different keys, and Mrs. Bixen began pounding out individual notes, trying to corral us into one tonality, and somehow we made it through the song. And now I was supposed to be the Snow Queen. Well, in my mind, I thought I was just going to be able to slide that costume up, 
flip it off over my head, and I would emerge as the Snow Queen. But it didn't work like that. I wiggled and I squirmed and I tried to slide it and it absolutely would not move and the audience began laughing but I was so busy trying to get out of that costume I never thought they were laughing at me and finally some good-natured backstage parent ran out slid the costume off me set it down and ran off and the audience began to applaud and this time I thought they were clapping for me so I took a bow, and when I raised my head, I saw that Mrs. Bixom had her hands in front of her eyes and was peeking out between two fingers as if she was terrified to see what was happening on stage. But I stepped forward, and I said my lines, well, sort of. The problem was, I never really learned the script, just the gist of it. And that threw poor Melvin Wurstenberger completely off. He stared at me. Then he stared at Mrs. Bixom. Then off into the wings, and finally he settled on the ceiling. So I whispered his lines to him but he didn't get it. So I said them a little louder, and he still didn't get it, and I thought, how dumb can he be? And I began shouting his lines at him, and Melvin's eyes grew wide, and he started repeating every line back to me, only turning each line into a question, and by now the audience was roaring. But we weren't done. I had to go be a tree again. This time, all the other trees broke character. They rushed at me in that zombie-like little walk, arguing over who was going to do what to get me into my costume, and when the commotion was over, I was back in my tree costume, minus my leaves and branches. We lined up. We said our part. We sang our song. And now I had to be the Snow Queen again. Well, I was already the Snow Queen from the neck up and from the knees down, and I thought, that's just going to have to do. And I moved forward toward center stage. As I walked, that ridiculous stupid train wrapped itself around my feet and thunk. Over I went flat on my stomach, face first toward the audience. And I tried to get up. I rocked. I couldn't get up. I flapped my arms. I flapped my legs. I was like a beached whale. I could not move, but I knew the show must go on. So I raised my head. I summoned up all the authority of the evil queen and I said my lines and I got a standing ovation but when I looked at Mrs. Bixom her head was down on the keyboard and I thought I wonder what's wrong with her clearly the show was a success listen to all that applause well, I went home with my mother and father that night, and when Daddy opened the car door for me, he said, Madeline, 
you were terrific. And I knew my parents were really happy because every time they looked at me, they started to laugh. Well, I didn't make it back to school the next day or the day after because I came down with the same stomach bug Freddie had. But when I did return, all the big kids gathered around me. They shook my hand. They patted my back. After all, I was the star of the show. Madeline Potts with the Snow Queen, a story about an elementary school dramatic production of the Hans Christian Andersen classic, The Snow Queen. What a delight to hear from Madeline. While we're thinking about elementary school, let's share one more story with you. This one from Mary Hamilton, who, when she was a kid, would tell stories to her classmates with some embellishments, some decorations, and those embellishments and decorations might have been the seeds for Mary's storytelling career. Now she's told stories for decades and decades in front of elementary school students and others just like her. And the story here is called Jump Rope Kingdom, and we're sure you'll enjoy it. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. First grade baby, second grade tots, third grade angels, fourth grade snots, fifth grade peaches, sixth grade plums, and all the rest are dirty bums. I heard that rhyme for the first time on my first day of school at Flaherty Elementary in Meade County, Kentucky. I'm not sure who started that rhyme. It could have been the snots, they were proud of themselves. It might have been the peaches, might have been the plums. I don't believe it was the dirty bums because, if memory serves me correctly, the dirty bums were considered much too old for recess. But that rhyme was going out on the playground day after day, recess after recess, and it was loud. First grade baby, second grade tots, third grade angels, fourth grade snots, Fifth grade peaches, sixth grade plums, and all the rest are dirty bums. Even when the bell rang, and our teachers left the school building to meet us, and we ran from the playground to meet our teachers, the rhyme did not stop. As my classmates and I walked single file in line behind our teacher on the way to our classroom, I could still hear that rhyme. First grade babies, second grade tots, third grade, I was in first grade, but I was not a baby. I was the oldest child in my family, the only one old enough to walk all the way out our long driveway, catch that big yellow school bus, and ride it to school. I wasn't a baby. I was a big girl. But somehow, I knew if I said, Teacher, teacher, do you hear? There would be laughter, and I wouldn't think it was funny. The big kids were the ones who chanted that rhyme, and at my school, the big kids were the rulers of the playground. The big boys ruled the kingdom of marbles. Marbles. 
A game played in rings, drawn in dust beneath the shade of trees. And I can't tell you what happened in the kingdom of marbles. For when I was a girl, marbles was a boy's only world. The big girls ruled a kingdom, too. They ruled the jump rope kingdom. They decided who was going to turn the rope, who was going to jump, what chants were going to be chanted. They ruled the jump rope kingdom. When I began first grade, I knew how to jump rope. I did. My mama would take a rope and tie it to a porch post. Then she would string that rope across the porch. My little sister Patty would pick up the other end of the rope. I'd stand beside the rope and watch Patty. She would turn the rope and I would jump. I knew how to jump rope when I began first grade. But in the jump rope kingdom ruled by the big girls, no one stood beside the rope and waited for the rope to turn. Oh no, the big girls ran in while the rope turned. They ran in to the words of the jump rope rhymes. Not last night, but the night before. Twenty-four robbers came a-knockin' at my door. As I ran out, and the big girl ran out, they ran in, and she jumped back in, called going in the back door, and hit me on the head with a rolling pin. And this is what they said for me to do. Fancy dancer, do the twist. And the big girl twisted while she jumped. Fancy dancer, give a high kick. And she'd kick and jump on one foot. Fancy dancer, turn all around. And she turned in a circle while she jumped. Fancy dancer, get out of town. And that big girl would run out, the next would run in, and the chant would begin again. The rope never stopped. I was not prepared. So I sat on the sidewalk and I watched. I learned the rhymes, I took them home, I taught them to my sister, but I did not because I believed I could not jump rope with the big girls. One day, one of the big girls, Anna Jo Hinton, walked over, looked down at me, and said, Don't you want to jump rope? Oh, I do, I do, but, but you don't know how, do you? Oh, I know how to jump. I know the rhymes and everything. I don't know how to run in. Anna Jo looked back at the other big girls. Hey, she does too know how to jump. She just doesn't know how to run in. Oh, I believe I can teach her. Some of the big girls laughed, but Anna Jo looked at me and offered her hand. You hold my hand, she said, and when I say run, you run. When I say jump, you jump. I held her hand. Run, she said. I ran. Jump. I jumped. Missed. I missed. Some of the big girls laughed at me, but Anna Jo silenced them with, She almost got it. Turn the rope again. And again, run. I ran. Jump. I jumped. And I wish I could tell you I got it on my second try, but it wasn't an easy thing for me to learn. Over and over again, Anna Jo made the other big girls turn the rope, until it happened. Run, I ran, jump, I jumped, and I was jumping rope. Then Anna Jo looked at me and she said, You better hold my hand again, I'm going to teach you how to get out of here. 
and I stopped the rope several more times learning how to run out. Well, Anna Jo Hinton was a queen in the jump rope kingdom, a queen who could lead the others with wisdom enough and courage enough to offer her hand to one they called a first-grade baby and bring that first-grade baby all the way inside the jump rope kingdom. <laughs> Mary Hamilton with Jump Rope Kingdom. Again, such pleasure to have you with us today on The Appleseed. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed for more. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.